the simplicity and the way he just lays out the disciplines in a way I think anyone can understand. Um, and he just talks about the basics of them and not as something like we need to work hard to fulfill, but okay, here's this discipline. Here's what it looks like. Here's some way to practice it. And then you go from there. You know, it's not like a, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this kind of deal, but just like, it just lays it out there and says, here you go. Experiment. Um, I really like the way you've introduced us to Foster and the idea, I mean, even evident in the title of his, of his famous book, Celebration of Discipline, that like, that offers these, these practices of faith as something joyful and joy giving and life giving rather than drudgery. And, and I, I think for, for many, the phrase celebration of discipline may sound like an oxymoron. Um, it may, and maybe in part because discipline is used in so many other ways as scolding or getting smacked on the hand with a ruler or um, the book of rules is called a book of discipline, that kind of thing. Uh, but to, to recapture the idea of the, the practices of uh, the Christian faith and Christian spirituality being something that are life-giving that that seems like a, a much needed word for 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 this moment for for our time for, certainly. I I like that Foster is very ecumenical. Like, you know, when he in this book and in other texts, I mean, he draws from, you know, the Catholic tradition and you know the early church fathers and mothers, the Desert Fathers, um, you know, those groups, and that's kind of that's a very Wesleyan thing. You know, Wesley was very ecumenical, very much like Luther. He didn't want to necessarily separate, um, at least at the beginning, Luther didn't want to separate necessarily. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church, and Wesley wanted to reform the Anglican Church. Um, but Wesley was very much all about working with other denominations, being very ecumenical. And I see a lot of that in Foster. And I don't know if that's just a Quaker thing, um, but it's definitely something I appreciate. That, that that seems helpful too to to get at that to be a part of that tradition the Quaker tradition that you know many people if they have any awareness beyond the oatmeal um, it's of like you know picturing the people sitting in a meeting house with no structure no liturgy no hymnal saying here's what you have to do but we're all sitting quietly until the spirit moves you to get up and speak or say something or pray and that can feel like scarily unprepared or, or spontaneous and to discover that someone who's in that tradition it's not that they're opposed to ever having structure or methodology or approach to connection with god and it's not that spontaneity is the only way you can connect with god but that someone who comes out of that tradition can say but no there's value in all these different uh, approaches and, and disciplines uh and and the structure of meditation or prayer or fasting or whatever else he might highlight in in the book that it's, it's not an either or, but a both and, the, the structure and the spontaneity. As well as that tradition always strikes, struck me as the Holy Spirit can move anybody in the assembly mm -hmm. to speak and to speak on behalf of God. And I think that that is, you know, at its heart, very beautiful because, you know, God doesn't speak just through the ordained preacher, doesn't work just through the ordained preacher, but anybody who's sitting there could be moved to speak on behalf of God. It seems to me like this is one of the tensions 
in, uh, to, to be honest, in, in any approach to doing Christianity is that if you, there's going to be a tension between um, empowering everybody to offer insights and uh, the role of formal training and education in particular in formal training or expertise with say the scriptures or something like that, that, that if you're, I mean, uh, Protestant traditions by and large talk about the importance of the, the authority of the word and the scripture and therefore our approach to the, the office of ministry is well, okay, the people who are best trained to work with the scriptures are the ones who are most frequently going to be the ones bringing the word because of a certain theological commitment to the, the the final authority is the 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 written word of the scriptures and the preacher's job is to tell us what the scriptures mean and the the downside of that kind of an approach is sometimes that ends up playing out like the only people who have anything to say are the people who went to seminary nobody else has any insights ever to share um and you're wrong unless you went to seminary and went to a bible class and understand higher criticism of the scriptures and speak greek and hebrew and whatever um and on the flip side there's there's maybe the tension of if all we ever get is people who have no experience or no deeper knowledge or wisdom we're all just going to be pooling around our own ignorance and there can be a downside to a bunch of people i don't know what do you think well i don't know what do you think i don't even like but living in that tension of there there's there's value for people who have spent time studying and learning and there's also value for having the the breathing space that god might speak up to and and prompt something to be said by somebody who never went to seminary never went to college never went to finish high school but uh, has a word from god that seems an important we need to hold on to that too and something I really appreciate about the, the Quaker and, and the way they do um, their services, just the way that they are, is that discernment piece and, and how good they are at that. Because like I, I've recently been reading some books um, on discernment and like using discernment in church meetings, like council meetings and stuff, like taking mm-hmm. some time, praying over a decision, discerning about you know what is god's will in this particular moment and that is something at least in the churches where i have been a part of where i have served as a pastor that's the pastor's job Mm. you know and the the lady seemed to be afraid of that um mostly because they've not been trained how to do it yeah um and i think that's just kind of like second nature at least from my study of the Quaker church, I had a Quaker friend in, in seminary. I never got to go to worship with her. Um, but that, from what I understand about the Quaker denomination, that's just kind of like second nature where, you know, yeah, you do sit in that silence and you wait for somebody to discern that the spirit is speaking to them. And then whether or not that is a message for them personally or for the group as a whole. Yeah. It's, it seems to me too, uh, in a tradition like, like my own at least, where a lot of our polity is built around the structure of Robert's rules, mm-hmm. which is a fine way to conduct meeting, but it assumes certain things about conflict and boils down to it's a system based on majority is going to rule, which assumes that there's going to be times we can't all agree, and in the end we're going to give the decision to whoever has the most votes, uh, and sometimes prioritizes doing things in the right form rather than yeah, making room for what's right in this situation. You know, whether you had a motion to do it right, can we listen to what's God saying here? And I think there's something beautiful about a tradition that says you can make decisions and not 
build your structure around there's going to be a majority who wins and a minority who loses you can build a structure on consensus um and it seems to me like the the that would be right for the criticism of well you'll never get everybody to agree on something how will you ever make any decisions um and yet i think about the quakers as a tradition and at least in american history they're they were one of the earliest bodies in american history to have a clear policy against slavery and to be advocating for the abolition of slavery when that wasn't by any means a consensus on the rest of American Christianity. So they took what was a controversial stand at the time and were clear as a body, this is what God wills for us to say. We need to speak up on this. Here's our policy. Here's what we're going to do and say. And it wasn't just uh, because they required consensus watering down to never saying anything of substance. They were able to discern that. That tells me uh, that it is possible sometimes to trust that the spirit's going to lead you co- to consensus, even when walking into a decision, you don't think it's going to be possible. Yeah. We're very much a Robert's rule denomination as well. I mean, yeah. you go to our annual conference and <laughs> that's all, you know, Robert's rules, Robert's rule. Um, and, and so many people think that consensus means, you know, a unanimous decision It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. like there might still be some people that, that aren't necessarily, in favor of the decision that has been made, but they're like, okay, I can see the good that might come out of this. Right. I'm going right. to support it and I'm going to go with it. And um, I was just reading something the other day uh, talking about, you know, Wesley and how our faith tradition in the past is, you know, we're, we're kind of that middle of the ground denomination where we try to look at both sides of things mm-hmm. uh, and everything. Like we try to pull in a little, you know, what's good from the, this side and what's good from this side and pull them together and try to make a decision. Um, you know, and, and I think that that part of, maybe that's what attracts me to the Quaker denomination is now that I've read that and realized, okay, that's part of Wesley too. That makes a lot of sense to me. And in what I've been dealing with, um, with some stuff with my denomination right now and, you know, how we move forward on some different decisions and things. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And so maybe this is why I'm so attracted to foster in the Quaker tradition because they've been doing that for centuries. Yeah. Can, can I lead us back towards that exercise that you mentioned at the beginning of the yep. episode, Erica? So uh, in your in your exercise, people are encouraged to close their eyes and picture the beach and Jesus is walking towards them and asks two questions, right? The first being, what do you need from me? And then um, you ask that question, you ask that question back of like, what do you need from yep. me to, to Jesus? Yep. And um, I, I think that is a great exercise. Like I now want to find this book so that I can read more about it, but um I love the idea of we're in relationship with, with God, with Jesus. And as all relationships, it's a two way street, right? That you both give and you receive. It's not just, oh yes, Jesus gives, gives and I receive. And that's the end of the story, Mm -hmm. but also no, it's a two way street. I also give freely of myself but what does God need from me right now? Like, I, I, I love that. Um, do you, was there, is there more to that exercise? Like after that moment, or do you just kind of sit and wrestle for a while with what does God need from me? Um, 
I think really, and I'm trying to remember, it's been a while, it's been a couple of years since I've read this book. And so I'm trying to remember if that exercise even comes out of the book. I think it does. Um, it may have just been something my pastor came up with after reading the chapter. Um, but that's, for me, that's it, fair. If he did, kudos to that pastor, because I think that's right? great. Um, I, I think it's just kind of sitting and wrestling. Like if you do get something, a word or, or feeling like the sense that, you know, God has spoken to you and this is what he wants you to do. Like I said, this was the beginning of my call. It took another couple of years for me to realize that when God said, feed my sheep, um, that that meant go into pastoral ministry. You know, I thought it meant youth ministry that I was already involved in. Then I thought maybe it was mission work because I went on a couple mission trips and I really liked that. And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's mission work. I never thought it was pastoral ministry. Never thought it was pastoral ministry until I went to what we call lay servant ministry schools, which is um, classes for lady to become certified speakers and, and things like that in the church. Um, and I preached my first sermon at my home church and I had a gentleman come up to me afterwards and said, so when are we starting the fun for you to go to seminary? And I said, shut up, Dale. I'm not going to seminary. Mm -hmm. That was in June. Uh, late August, I came back from a mission trip overseas. And I said, okay, Dale, we can start that fund. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it took a while to sit with that. Um, you know, and I talked with some missionary friends who that was their calling too. Like that's the word that they got from Jesus was to go and feed his sheep. But their call was actually to the mission field. Um, you know, so I it's an exercise that can be done at any point in time. You know, it doesn't have to be any special place, but it does take a willingness to just sit and to listen and, and not think, to rush it. And I think that's very quick. Like that is also at the heart of the Quaker tradition, right? Is yeah. that willing, willingness, willingness to be still, mm -hmm. to be, to be quiet, to, be willing to sit and wrestle internally with God and also not to be afraid of silence. Like yeah. I feel like in, in the Lutheran tradition, I don't want to speak for the Methodist tradition, but the Lutheran tradition, you know, it may say in our rubrics, allow time for <laughs> silent reflection after the sermon or whatever. Do you know how long that lasts? Five seconds. Yeah. Like, and then that organist is like there with the first note of the hymn of the day, or there's supposed to be silence between prayer petitions. And it's like five seconds. Like we do not sit in silence very well as a community. Yeah. And I think part of it, like you say, is the external pressure of the other players. And to be honest, sometimes it's the preacher with the internal clock of someone's going to say a service ran long or I'm late for lunch or the football game is starting. So even if the pastor is one who would like things to go slower and more meditatively, sometimes we add that own pressure. And sometimes, mm -hmm. worst of all, we psych ourselves into it. We sort of project onto others. They want me to rush through this. So I'll, you know, I, and I'm thinking they want me to wait two seconds. I want to wait 10 seconds. We'll split the difference and have five seconds and feel like that's the compromise. And it still feels like there hasn't been the breathing room. There hasn't been that space. And yeah, because as, as a tradition, we haven't been willing to cultivate, it's okay if there's silence for a while. This, this mm -hmm. isn't radio. It's okay if there's dead air for a while. I especially 
out um you know i think it was it's especially worsened over the past year with the pandemic um but i was editing our um christmas eve service and you know we were just completely online for this service there wasn't any person in person so like i just got a bunch of clips from people like you know the readers all sent in clips the musicians sent in her clips my co-pastor sent in clips and oftentimes as soon as people were done with whatever they were doing like they did something else that was not supposed to be a part of the service and I was supposed to edit it like and so like in the service it was we jumped immediately like so there wasn't even the breathing space between like the usual people moving like so that like one person has to go back to their seat and that happens before the music starts or whatever there wasn't even those pauses and and I don't know it, how this is going to play out in the next couple of years as we move more towards hybrid churches and as we, um, you know, go back to in-person, like how, because how, I feel like over the past year, we've kind of lost even more of that willing willingness to be still and quiet during worship services. Yeah, 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 I hear you. I remember when we did this meditation, like, I kind of rushed through it to, to share it here because um, of that time factor, you know. Um, but, you know, we did sit for some time. I don't forget how long it was. Um, but I remember preaching a sermon early on when I was still at that church on silence. And I started it, like the sermon was supposed to start. I was like in the back of the sanctuary. I just stood there for like a minute. And then I walked up. And I preached and I remember talking about, you know, how uncomfortable is that? You know, um, when I was working at, um, with the chapel at seminary, we had worship. I mean, worship had to be done in an hour. It started <laughs> at 11. It had to be done at noon. So people could go get lunch and go to class at one o'clock, you know? And so we had that thing so flawlessly scheduled that, you know, as one person is finishing their reading, the next person is ready to come up from the opposite side. So then they're not having to cross each other and, and like, I'm like, where, where's the silence? Like, where's just the, can we just be still for a moment? And I can imagine if you're the either professor of worship or the, the sacristan or the person in charge of organizing worship in a setting like that, it would be really tempting to think your job is to show everybody how tightly and smoothly you can run things uh, because you want to model. We want to, you know, we want to train our pastors to be good and efficient. Mm-hmm. And that's not wrong exactly. I, I feel like we need a, a word in English where it's not wrong, but it kind of is. Um, but like, uh, uh, okay, I get it. That's one one set of skills when you are a worship leader. You don't want to have like meandering, unfocused silence, but to be able to craft those a silence well, to be able to use it well and not, and, and even just how do you manage a silence so it doesn't feel like nobody knows what's supposed to happen, but no, this is purposeful. This is intentional. This is good. That That's a, a skill. That's a, re, that's a discipline. I've started finding myself, I have a, somebody, a lay person read the scripture for Sunday morning. They come up to the pulpit to read. Um, and then the sermon starts immediately once the, once the reading's done. Um, and so what I've started to do it, doing is waiting until they get back to their seat or at least almost the whole way back to their seat. Cause I don't want them to miss the beginning of the sermon, you know, because they're waking their way back to their seat. And so that kind of helps to build in that silence yeah. just a little bit, but like, you know, you talked about the rubric of, in your denomination in our communion liturgy after our time of confession, we're supposed to have a time of silence. Um, 
I try to make that last more than five seconds. <laughs> I think it lasts more than five seconds, but you know, I'm not sitting there either watching my watch <laughs> and saying, okay, it's been 30, you know, it's been five seconds. It's been 10. Okay. Now I can, you know, somebody once told me that when there is built into the rubric silence for reflection, that a good length of time is the time it takes you to silently pray the Lord's prayer in your head. Mm. Nice. And so that way you have it like, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to just like wait 30 seconds. But then like, if you count, you can count too fast. You can count too slow. Like, but if you pray the Lord's prayer, it's a pretty consistent length. Yeah. And it, it changes the way you use that silence yourself. This is, And not to get us too far afield into the, the weirdness and the quirks of being a worship leader, but there's always that tension when you are leading worship of, is this time that allows you to worship or are you here to corral other people? And it can, it can feel all, only like you're a timekeeper or a referee if you're, you know, looking at a stopwatch going, are people going to be mad because I you know, made the silence too long? But if there's a, how will I use this moment to be prayerful and recentered myself, myself so that my conducting of the rest of this time can be worshipful for other people as well? That, that's a, a difficult thing, but that, that ability seems important. It almost feels to me like, uh, and I don't know that I'd ever thought about this, so push back if this sounds like nonsense or heresy, but like when I think about like the role of a conductor uh, with an orchestra, um, that while obviously the, it, the orchestra is the one primarily performing, the conductor has to be present enough to the music themselves that they're aware of what's going on so that when they need a breath, it's not selfish, but it's what allows everybody else who's playing to have the okay, now we're ready to attack the second movement or whatever. And in a similar way, maybe the, the leader in worship uh, is clearly not there to make themselves the center of attention anymore. The conductor is, I mean, they're, they're not the center of attention, it's the music, but it's you're helping to coordinate others to bring that to life. And that our role as worship leaders is about making it possible for everybody else to offer their prayers and, and praise and lament and all those things together. If, if, if I can jump back to that uh, meditation uh, illustration that, that you had uh, talked about too, Erica, one of the things I, I like about it with the way that it was conducted, that it went, is to me, it sounds like it avoided the schmaltiness of the footprint story. Like, you know, you know that, that everybody knows the story on the plaque and the mug and whatever about the person walking along the beach who sees Jesus. And while that's a fine story, it feels like it ties things up in so neat and tidy a bow because it only looks backward at the places in the past where Jesus carried you that sometimes you forget like, where are we going from here, Jesus? And that to, to make the question that open-ended, where is Jesus leading me from here? And what will Jesus give me moving on from here? It seems blessedly dangerous and that it's this open-ended, yeah, where are we going to go from here? And that even asking the question, what is Jesus going to offer me or what does Jesus need from me? feels like I could get it wrong. I could get the answer to that question wrong. And yet that's not the end of the world. That seems to me a really important lesson, maybe that, that we need to rediscover the ability to learn like that. There are going to be times when I think Jesus is saying this to me and my best, most faithful, you know, insights are leading me in that answer. And it could be, nope, but that was half right. Or that was, you know, it turned out that was a sort of a detour and being okay with that, that the relationship doesn't end just because I might occasionally get that answer wrong, 
that seems an important thing too, so that we don't feel like it's, um, you got to get the answer right of what you're supposed to offer Jesus or else you're out of the club. And I think it's important when leading others through this exercise to remind them that if, if they don't hear anything, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I was blessed enough that day. Like I said, I, I heard something. It was like that audible voice. Um, it wasn't just a, a strange, you know, heart strangely warm kind of moment that of Wesley. It was like a voice that was not my own saying, feed my sheep. There could have been 50 other people in that congregation with me who heard nothing. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Yeah. It's not an exercise like that you have to hear something. It's not even an exercise where you have to say something to Jesus when he asks you, what do you need from me? You might just sit and say, right now, Jesus, I don't need anything but to be in your presence. Yeah. And I think it's also a possibility that people will have a seed planted, you know, and I think that your example, Erica, of what you experienced was, yes, you got an answer, but that was still also a seed Mm -hmm. that it didn't fully, you didn't fully understand it for a while and that's okay and some people might hear silence but they might continue to continue to wrestle with that question and then later hear an answer that you know a lot of ministry in my experience is planting seeds mm-hmm. and you don't know what's going to take root and you don't know what's going to decompose so that something else can take root later um you know we just plant seeds and then God grows them. Sometimes you end up with a mixed bag of wildflowers. You're not really sure what kind of flower is going to come up to. Right. Um, th- th- I really, really like that, that idea of allowing things to, to grow and to percolate and take, take the time. Because I think maybe another challenge of the traditions of ministry that we come from, um, especially where worship looks like this pretty well scripted, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. We we can predict what's going to happen well enough that we can print it in the bulletin rather than Quaker meeting, which is, you know, who knows how long silence until somebody says something, is that that means that what comes out of the the gathering in in worship, you can't quite predict and to be okay with that. You know, like I think sometimes the temptation for preachers is um, that we should go into a sermon asking ourselves, well, what do I want people to learn or take away at the end of the sermon? They should know these three things or do these four things. And these are the concrete checkoff lists that they should be able to do because they heard my sermon. And again, that's not exactly a wrong question, but I'm not sure that it's always the right question either. Cause sometimes it's more, I don't know what's going to come out for this. And maybe what the, what the people need in this moment is not three things to do with your week, but just be immersed in this reality about God's goodness and let that do what it's going to do. Um, the same way that, you know, when you water, whatever seeds you've planted, the water is going to do what it's going to do and let it bring up what's, what's going to come up out of the ground. But again, that's, that's, that's different than our traditions are wired for, which is usually, you know, you preach so you can get people to repent. Or you preach so you get people to give their life to Jesus. You preach so that, uh, you know, Lutherans feel guilty enough and then be glad that they're saved by grace. Um, but like sometimes it's not, it's not even reducible to what do you want to accomplish out of this, but just you know, bring, bring, bring people into the presence of God and get out of the way and let God do what God's going to do. 
Well, I appreciate, uh, Erica, your willingness first to, to be the bold pioneer in this new series and introduce us to somebody outside of your and our faith traditions. Um, for folks who are listening, this is sort of what the, the next several episodes are going to be like. Each of us is going to get to highlight somebody outside of our own individual faith tradition and what they have to offer us, what insights we've gathered, and where they provide grist for our theological and spiritual mill. So we hope you'll join us for further conversations with these voices from outside our traditions here on Crazy Faith Talk. Feel. I come to sit.